Welcome to week three, Theo 102. Welcome. Week three, Empire. We are talking about the realities of Empire. We are reading chapter two of Turning Points and by Mark Knoll. By Mark Knoll called The Realities of or Realities of Empire, The Council of Nicaea 325. So we've already gone several hundred years forward in history mm. at this point. We're getting into it now. We really it are. Kind of We're getting into to the me, weeds. It kind of felt to me like in the beginning here of this of this series now that we've gotten past the New Testament and into the history after that, like we've still been kind of like stalling in the New Testament place where like the church is still kind of like in Jerusalem, but then they move out. But now it's like, oh, oh, now it's getting serious. Do it you, is. Do you need to know more students? This is the Need to Know More podcast. Okay. Yes. Just FYI. And just as a reminder to the students, we're, we're traveling really quickly through history. So hundreds of years are now going to fly by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, every single chapter we're going to cover hundreds and hundreds of years. And this is where I like to remind students that um, a, a survey course like this is, in my imagination, is best understood as a buffet. You come through, you're a little overwhelmed by all the food. When I go to a buffet, I like to try a little bit of everything, and then I come back for the things that I like. So you're in the first phase of the buffet Mm. of history. We're just (laughs) going right along. You come back for more later at some point in your life, maybe. I like to get my money's worth at a buffet. I do, too. You know what I mean? I eat like 150% (laughs) of the the cost. Hey, like, hey, oh, I feel terrible. What happened? I don't know. I just ate like eight meals. Yeah. Is that bad? Because I, I have a weird thing about, I'm going to get my money's worth even more. So anyway, here we are. Here we are. Reading about the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea. Uh, but it's the, the creed is called the Nicene or the Nicene or the Nicene. Like, why are all these different pronunciations? I'm kind of confused <laughs> by it. I think usually people pronounce it as the Nicene Creed. Nicene. Mm-hmm. But there's like, mm-hmm. okay. So it's almost as though there are two E's in a row that ends in an N, but it's like, but it looks like it could be. Nice, yes, nice. Yes. Not the Nicene Creed, but the Nicene, Nicene, like two I think syllables. It, yes, I think that's usually how it's pronounced. Um, kind of just a more efficient way mm. of of saying it. But I'm done yes, with that. <laughs> yes, and I'll now we're that. we're to the point in in church history when the the Christian Church has gone from this small struggling group of periodically persecuted believers into a much larger, much better networked, and ultimately much more powerful group of people. Yes, and so the students this week are going to be reading about um, the tensions and the, the benefits to becoming a much larger, much more powerful group. Some of the benefits of um, being a a smaller kind of renegade group. Inc- you could apply this to a lot of things like clubs, teams, oh, bands, sure. uh, music Certainly. and fandom, or your, even your home Certainly. church. Like, I, In fact, I'm going to use sports, a right. sports metaphor. All so right. my, my spouse is a lifelong Seattle Seahawks fan, mm. and he grew up. Um, rooting for the Seahawks in the 1980s when they were one of the worst teams in the NFL. Oh. Um, and when he meet another Seahawks fan, it was like this was wonderful, like passionate yep. moment of understanding between the two of like them. Like you could embrace a stranger in a grocery yeah, store. Yeah, because that. it wasn't like back in those days, like the San Francisco 49ers were huge and they mm. were, you know, everywhere there were San Francisco 49ers When I was fans. a kid, they were, winning, yeah, they were winning the Super Bowl lots of years when I was a kid. Right, or Cowboys or something yep. like that. But Seattle Seahawks, if you were a Seattle Seahawks fan, you were... Um, an elite group of 
right. downtrodden Sufferers. fans. Yeah. Right. But then in the early 2000s, they started, they, they won a Super Bowl. Right. It was, they, they became this huge national brand. Right. People were wearing jerseys. We lived in Tennessee at that time. They were wearing jerseys all the way in Nashville, Tennessee. And you and looked then, at them and you were like, you're not a real fan. See, that's what my husband's response was. Yep. And to this day, like they, yep. the Seahawks just lost and they didn't make it in like advance toward the Super Bowl or whatever. That did just happen. Obviously I'm not a huge sporting fan. And so he was um, weirdly kind of happy about that because in his mind, you determine the real fans. Oh, I get it. See, I I, I watched an interview with both of the members of the the Black Keys, a musical band yesterday, and they were talking about fandom and selling out. And they were talking about how a lot of their earliest fans in this small town, like Akron, Ohio, where they're from, basically had the exact same perspective. They were like, okay, they, right. would, they would rather have them fail and be part of that small group because success, that's not your goal as a fan. You don't want success. You want to be part of something that's real. And you're not, you're not thrilled when the black keys, when you hear their music on a commercial, if you're a real fan, you're <laughs> right. like, get that they out of here. Sellouts. You don't want to go into Walgreens and hear a black key song playing. That's he said, when you go into Walgreens, this is one of the members. When you go in there, the drummer, he was saying, when you go into Walgreens and you hear a song playing, like, that's the last thing that you want to hear, right? Okay, so that sort of, I, I think those two examples are really excellent translations into our like American brand culture. Mm-hmm. Some of the tensions that the early church was undergoing. So last week we were reading wor- the words of Perpetua and Felicitas, mm. who were these Martyrs. women who were brutally killed in a mm. public way for confessing the faith. And that kind of um, witness to Christ was extremely energizing for the church. Totally. On the other hand, it was also a source of tremendous fear and trepidation. Oh. And so when we move into a time when when Christianity goes from becoming, um, the official word would be a religio illicita, an illegal religion, to a religio licita, legal religion. Mm. Not necessarily, um, it, initially it wasn't necessarily the, the official religion of Rome, but it was a government um, acknowledged and sure. sponsored. Like they had a list, like here are some religions you can do if you, you can want to. You can do, you once you can do it. And then under Constantine, when it became a sponsored religion, you know, like where you could, you could get money and, um, and a lot of power by being associated with Christianity, even political power. That's a whole other set of, of opportunities. Yes. And then also though, potentially pitfalls. Well, hot take, I'm thinking to myself in some ways, I don't know if I really feel this way. I'm just trying to imagine it. If I were right now, 2021, United States, if Christianity became illegal, maybe my faith would become a lot more like, I don't know, fervent. Maybe I'd become more fiery about it because it'd be, it'd be awesome to be like breaking the law in service of something that you know is the real law. And you could imagine like a much like, I don't know, just like a bunch deeper adherence and like all of the lukewarm wannabes, like the people just wearing the jerseys, (laughs) get them out. You know, a lot of people say that because we live in a country where we have, um, we have basically principles that don't allow for an established relationship between Christian mm-hmm. churches or any religious organization and the state. Um, although there are a lot of historians who would argue that we have that the U.S. has a very friendly relationship to Christianity, in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. 
But the I, the general idea is we value a principle known as religious freedom where anyone can practice whatever religion as long as they're like upholding other laws mm-hmm. of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be living under that persecution. One mm-hmm. of the things that I often think about, because we're reading about like the big people, the big players, the big religious leaders, but I always am thinking about what the regular people were thinking about. Mm-hmm. And when I, in my imagination, I think, what would it be like if you were... Um, in the 300s, living as a Christian, to live through the time when Christianity went from being a religion that was seen as subverting the powers of the empire to Mm -hmm. being the religion of the empire. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Mark Knoll talks about in this book is, um, in chapter two, is that um, many political leaders saw in Christianity opportunity Mm -hmm. for holding what was then a waning empire together. Oh, I see. Yeah. So So like you need a belief system, like the idea of a nation and a religion kind of go together in this way of thinking. And you might want, you might want to have Christianity as a way to like kind of get everybody on the same page sort of. Yeah. A lot of historians have argued that certain things that Christians did in the early years, um, once you get a couple hundred years into it, Mm -hmm. political leaders start looking at what they're doing and saying, Oh, wow. If you have a transnational empire like the Roman Empire was, I mean, it, it lo- on a map, it looks like a smaller part of the world, but mm-hmm. at that time, it would have seemed like the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, if you're charged with, be- with being in charge of that, wh- all of a sudden you see this growing group of people who do things like this. They take care of the sick, mm-hmm. they take care of the poor, they have um, an, a, an extensive network of communication with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they are basically creating like this international coalition of people. Mm-hmm. You can see why somebody who say you're charged with being in charge of the entire Roman empire where you'd see like, Hey, huh? Maybe this, this group of people mm-hmm. has something that would benefit. Sure. You could institutionalize some, if, if Jesus' ideas were great ideas, and of course Christians think that they're much more than great ideas, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, that's, if, if that's at least true, why wouldn't you want them to just become like the ideas by which a society would live? Um, but it could also mean that, and, and I'm just reading from the, the la- one of the last pages yes, in, in the chapter yes. from Mark Noll, he says, uh, this is on page 55 in case you're sitting there reading my exact version of this book, Mark uh-huh. Noll, Turning Points. In this sense, Nicaea bequeathed a dual legacy of sharpened fidelity to the great and saving truths of revelation. In other words, lots of people can do it. They'll have all kinds of faith. You get a creed in here. I guess we got to talk about the creed in a little Mm -hmm. bit. And also of increasing intermingling of church and world. Now that, what's the dual legacy? So on the one hand, it has the potential to make faith stronger and more people are doing it and it's more organized. And they believe the right things as opposed to just like whatever they want. Like, hey, let's all get on the same team here. Put on your uniform. Say the things that we're all saying. Got it? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're intermingling, once you start getting involved in the world, the worldly things, now it's like, is faith just going to win every time that collision occurs? No, it's not going to win. It's going to lose sometimes. Is that is that the suggestion he's making? I think that's exactly the suggestion that he's making. And maybe for the benefit of the students, um, we should review what a creed is oh, and yeah. what a council is. So um, a creed is basically a distilled set of Christian beliefs. Mm-hmm. And um, over... The, the course of Christian history, 
churches, um, like when, when Christians would want to make any big decision about things, including a set of beliefs about the person of Jesus, about the nature of the world and the church and mm-hmm. lots of different things, they would gather a bunch of leaders together. It, it makes a lot of sense. They get a bunch of the big, the, the influential leaders who represent a large group of, of practicing Christians, they'd bring them together. Mm-hmm. They'd discern with one another over a period of time. It could last days, years, like it, these things went for <laughs> often many long periods of time because they were wrestling with really big things. Like Fair. one of the big things would be, what's the nature of God? So one of the, the things that we've talked about before is the word Trinity is not present in the Bible. Right. Um, and yet the church comes to embrace God as these three parts, mm-hmm. um, three, three persons in one, this Trinity. So this doctrine of the of God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, got worked out in these big gatherings of Christians called councils. And councils, uh, working together, they believed um, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they created creeds Mm -hmm. that became this distilled form of Christianity. Because one of the challenges of a global religion, Mm -hmm. especially if you have illiterate people mostly and about 90% of the ancient world was illiterate at that time. Um, that's a high percentage. That's a high percentage. Nine out of 10 people you, you meet are illiterate. A great, um, messenger of this Christian teaching is this little distilled thing. That's easy to memorize. In fact, many Christians around the world have this version of the creed, the Nicene creed memorized and they recite it Mm -hmm. in churches. So it's very practical as well as, um, as complex mm-hmm. and but 325 is really important because prior to that it's mostly church leaders getting together and 325 um what the students are reading about t- today and one of the things that Noel talks about um that served as a warning was what if the empire gets involved in calling these councils? Oh no! Yeah, don't so, get them involved. Yeah. Or should they be involved? Maybe should it'd be they good. Be involved? Maybe it'd be great. Right? Maybe it'd be horrible. Right, right. So I think you. I mean, I love that you brought that quote into it because that's yeah. that's exactly the question. And it's right. a question that faces Christians in any era. Are uh, some people might say things like, for example, there was a popular series of books called The Da Vinci Code, which probably <laughs> right. is a little too old for students now, but like maybe 20 years ago, The Da Vinci Code was really popular and it's a fictional book, but it had all kinds of like religious like things going on. And one of the things that was kind of popularized through those books was this idea, and you'll see it all over the place in popular culture and in discussions and debates today is like, were these creeds, these, these statements of belief in these councils, were these kind of like sort of like backroom political affairs where basically these leaders just invented things like out of whole cloth that were not anyone's belief up till that time. Like basically (laughs) creeds are just about powerful people sort of telling other people like the little people what to think and do and say was, is that, is that your take on the nature of like how that kind of stuff went down? Well, a lot of people say that about um, creeds and big church decisions. And my response to that is I think that if, if we thought that these people only cared about accumulating power, then yes, we could interpret that them this way. But if we think that these people truly believed that they were tasked with representing the body of Christ right. and that they'd been tasked over generations. So one of the things that we read about in chapter one is that the one of the guiding principles of the church was that they believed that their church leaders from top to bottom 
descended in some way from the earliest followers of Jesus, this idea mm-hmm. of apostolic succession and right. apostolic authority. Right. So I think that there's, I think it's a little bit of a flat reading to say, oh, it's just about these people in a back room right. and they're creating something out of nothing. No, these people saw themselves as inheritors of a, a tradition mm. and they saw themselves as directly related to the people who had been commissioned by Jesus. So mm-hmm. there's a saying like in certain denominations, if they, or forms of Christianity, if they believe that in apostolic succession, that the hands that anointed them are the hands that were, you know, they're tied back to hands who are compelled by Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's like a massive responsibility. And right. if you believe that that's true, then you think that you're, you have a whole different view on your task. Right. I, I have so many questions for you. Like my first question that comes up right away, which I think we're going to have to put it off, but I'm just putting it out there, which is like, <laughs> let, let's skip this and go to the next question. But, but like this question would be, okay, but like, what if you're somebody who just doesn't believe that? What if you don't believe that that holds any authority? Like what, what kind of church would then you create? Or like, can you be a Christian and not believe that these groups were actually like driven by God? Um, oh, right. Well, there are plenty of Christians who believe that I know. now. Well, yeah, and they yeah. Come, okay. So let's, but that's, that's kind of like, that's coming in history. I wonder though, even if a question like that, it just shows in some ways, and I'm definitely guilty of this or in, even if it's not about guilt, like it just shows how cynical we are, right? Like mm-hmm. it's almost like, I don't want to trust that anyone actually really believed anything. It was always just a mask for power that they wanted to exert over others. And you know, that's probably kind of a bad attitude. Well, it's, kind of, <laughs> it's funny because we could maybe apply the same logic to Perpetua and Felicity. Like mm. what if we said, oh, you didn't really care about that. You were just really like in it for the attention. You right, just wanted right, to go in. Right. And that seemed, that falls a little flat because they died. You know, it's like, well, we sort right. of buy that they believed it in part. Now, some people try and psychologize that and say like they were deluded or something like that. Sure, sure. But in their lifetime and then in subsequent generations, people thought, well, no, they truly believed. Right. So I think, it, it, I think that just gets back to the original point of how much murkier things get mm-hmm. if you're in power versus not in power. Because if you're willing right. to put your life on the line, people believe you. But if your right. life's not on the line, and it's not like it was these people's fault well, <laughs> that their life is on the line. Although I right. will say that some councils resulted in violence. So in, people believed that doctrine about Jesus and God and the church was mm-hmm. a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. So I think it's part of it part of our interpretations of the past, we have to like get in the mindset of the past to think like, no, this is truly an issue of heaven or hell, life or death. Right. Um, so anyway, what are we, what are we reading? Today? Yeah. Today we are, we're going to read the Nicene Creed. I actually put up a version of the creed from the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. So um, I thought that it would be helpful for you to see it in a little bit in the context of a group of people who still use that as a form of prayer. Many different Christians do, um, but we're reading it on the Greek Orthodox site. Um, and then let's talk about it. Do you want to start us off with the, the first sentence? Let's go for it. The Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father through whom all things were made. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, 
and suffered and was buried. And he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful Ooh. statement. It is beautiful. Now, I go to a church currently that says the Nicene Creed, but some oh, of do it, you? Okay. Yeah, but some of it is actually a little different from this. There are a lot of different versions. I've looked up. Yeah. I, I, I was... Well, one of them is put... one of the biggest controversies, right? The so-called filioque, mm-hmm. which is a Latin word that means from the sun, mm-hmm. I think. Is that what that mm-hmm. means? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, we don't have to... Do you want to talk about that? Okay, maybe we can skip that, but it's a gorgeous... Let's a gorgeous. keep talking okay. about... Well, let's talk about it in a future okay. future week okay, because it keeps coming up again. Good idea. But yeah, you can see in this, in this one, you have a lot of conversation. So one way to teach this course would be just, let's look at different councils and creeds along the way we Mm -hmm. you know that's another version of this this course but one of the things is there's a lot in here about the nature of jesus and how he relates they really wanted to be (laughs) to god and they're like and you could read this i guess probably a lot of students would i would and just be like why were they why were they getting so obsessed with how to exactly to talk about jesus yeah and and part of that i mean all of this is tied up in church councils and in um big theological arguments about the person of Jesus. Because mm-hmm. if you if you think about it, if you read the Bible, like if you read the baptism of Jesus mm-hmm. and you see Jesus in like Matthew chapter three, there's a lot of different versions of it. If you see Jesus being baptized and then a voice coming out of heaven saying to Jesus, this is my son mm-hmm. whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Right. Um, and then you see like the spirit like a dove. You might think to yourself, how are all these things related to one another and who is Jesus? Is he a human who was elevated by God? Is he God who comes to earth like as like a ghost God? Is he actually a person? Is he not? And so this is the the church's attempt to affirm the fact that Jesus is God and human and also so very divine and very human. If Jesus was kind of like a ghost masquerading as a person, he seemed just to be, I mean, this is mm-hmm. one of the early heresies, mm-hmm. right? He seemed to be human docetism. Uh, that's what that means, right? Right, um, yes. I think, yeah. If that's true, then maybe, I mean, I think some of these things have theological consequences that might not be obvious. Like, for example, if 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 Jesus was just masquerading as a person, but he was actually just a God in a, like a human mask, then it might be the case that God doesn't really care about the physical world, the material world. He doesn't actually mm-hmm. care about our bodies because when he sent his son, he was like, yeah, he doesn't really have to have a body. Just those little humans have those gross bodies, but not my son. Mm-hmm. But no, God was like, my son has to have that. My son has that body. He's really a human. So I think that would be a really big deal. And I think that would have consequences even for like young people today, young people today, like 18 year olds, 19 year olds would be like, because you know we're in a phase where it's like, you know, when, when we're that age, you look at your body and you're like, I have these desires. I have this body. I am who I am. Like, is my, am I gross? Am I, who am I? What am I? Mm-hmm. Should, is the material world worth saving? 
And the, this, this view that this creed enshrines the incarnation seems to suggest, yes, it's worth saving. And God, God didn't do a fake out. He sent his actual son in an actual body. I love that you make that point because it invites us all to think about the really practical implications of all of our beliefs, the mm-hmm. ones in the Nicene Creed and as they develop over time. Mm-hmm. What's, wh- what would you say to someone who felt a little nervous about creeds? Like, look, this isn't in the Bible. Um, and this was a statement that, you know, humans made, like, were they guided by the Holy Spirit? Like, do Christians be- believe this? Is this what Christians believe? Well, um, I think that most Christians believe that the the Spirit was guiding the church along the way. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to talk about that um, in the future, like how the nature of the Spirit. But as for me, I'll just say my own position on this, whether or not you think creeds are helpful or whether or not you think creeds are even right or theologically responsible, I think it's it's helpful to know them and to think about them and understand them um, because it's helpful for us to appreciate where we come from. So if for, for nothing else, um, Christian or not, like if you want to know about the development of Christianity, you have to know the creeds. Mm-hmm. So first off, it's just good, you know, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. But then it's also helpful to, um, if you are a Christian, to understand the big questions that the people who went before you were wrestling with. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I have no problem with creeds myself. Yeah, I think as a Christian, it's like, I think the creeds show us that in fact, we rely as people of faith on the continuing work of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit through the church. And I know that our churches look really different sometimes and there are all kinds of different ways of doing it, but you can't, hey, I'm a biblical scholar. I love the Bible. You can't love the Bible more than me. Don't you even dare if you want to have that competition. <laughs> but it's like, he's the king. The spirit keeps working. And I think that Christians have to acknowledge that our formulations of important beliefs, like the incarnation about Jesus, all this stuff, it actually, yeah, you can get started in the Bible, but it's not finished there. 